0: Well, with that, let's open our time with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior we have. You gave your life. You came from heaven and entered into our dark world and our darkness. And you died for us so that we could have your life and so that we could have your righteousness and so that your work could be done in our lives And we so desperately need you. We have you, Lord, as we begin this year. Would you help us to live and treasure and share these amazing truths that you have given us through the Apostle Paul in this epistle to Romans? Would this be a letter that transforms our hearts, our lives, our church? Would we continue to grow in these things? And would we be able to share the light of your gospel, with a world that so desperately needs it. Thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight, hopefully, and if I could have my next slide, um, we're just doing a soft start, okay? No exegesis sheets today. um, No detailed study beforehand what we hope for is that your hearts will be warmed and we'll get back into Romans after having been away for around a month or so, and that we would just be ready to hit the ground running when we meet next week and uh, for our share in prayer time, and then also the week after as we jump back into Romans 7. But just to warm your hearts up, hopefully, we want to refocus our hearts on Christ. That's what Logos is about. And just to remind you, How does Christ love us? He loves us by giving his life to us, and he gave his life to us, and he gives it through his spirit and through his word. That's his presence and his very real presence in our lives, and so I'm going to give you an ask, church family, okay? As we get started the year, I'm going to ask you, as I've repeatedly said, just to put last year behind Done, it's over with as Kevin preached to us in Philippians. And let's keep our eyes on Christ in the new year. But I'm going to ask you that you would just commit your heart to Christ this year again by spending time in the Word. And very specifically, over the next few weeks, I'm going to ask you if you would start reading, okay, Matthew's Gospel, because we're going to jump back into what Jesus has to teach about prayer over the next few weeks, and we're coming back into the Sermon on the Mount. And I always find it helpful to read through a gospel at any given time to keep my eyes directly focused on Christ and his earthly ministry. So Matthew 1 through 5 or 6, because that's where we're going just to get back into the context. So Sunday when you come, you're not cold, but you're ready to jump right in. And then also for Lagos to go back from the beginning and begin reading Romans. And as you go through and as I've been able to do, it's just been Such an encouragement to me to be sort of done with the Christmas holidays and all the busyness. Our Christmas tree's been taken down, the lights are gone, it's the beginning of a new era. And to be able to just sit down and focus and walk through and and have Christ minister to my heart and soul to be back into the gospel and to be back into Romans. It's been sweet. One other plug I'm going to make for you, and I think one of the sweet things as we do this is we as a church get an opportunity to walk through these things together. And when Jesus says, and we're going to touch on this a little bit later this evening, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst, the context, Matthew 18, is church discipline. But the principle behind it is when people gather together to love one another, because that's what church discipline is about. As we gather together to be obedient to Christ. Christ's spirit is present in us, and as we come together, there is just a sweetness and a love and a presence of Christ that we experience in a special way as we gather together. And part of what we get a chance to do when we read through scripture together, even though we're separate, when we come together, it's like we've been traveling on the same road together, and we're connected, even though we're apart. And I would say this, what has been an encouragement to me as I meet with missionaries or pastors from around the world. One of the surprising and sweet things is to come to a passage of scripture that the Lord has put on our heart or he's taught us together. And when we gather together, even though we're ministering in different cultures or different languages, there is just a unity in Christ that we have in a special and unique way. And so I wanna encourage you to avail yourself of that. One final plug is this Sunday, the equipping hour is going to focus on worship, but our focus, after we have some sharing from book club and a time to pray together, is to focus on the theme of loneliness and worship. And one of the psalms that I'll be referring to on that morning is Psalm 102. Psalm 102, and hopefully to encourage you that there is a place for loneliness in worship, and also God has a purpose and a plan for that and we'll see how that plays out in our relationships and in our worship with the Lord. So I hope you'll be able to join us for that and as a prep for that you can read Psalm 102. All right we're gonna go through a rapid move through Romans 1 through 6 which is where we were last semester. I'm gonna try and focus on the context and the big picture to bring us back into this, to set the table. So as we jump into Romans chapter 7 and living and our sanctification, you'll be ready for it. And uh, warning in advance, I think I'm going to spend a fair amount of time going into the background again of Romans and Paul's life, but also on justification by faith. Because I believe that is an area that we want to grow in and we want to live out. In the history of the church, Romans and justification by faith in Romans have been two areas that have always brought revival in the church and reformation in the church. When the church, when marriages, when lives lose their way, God seems to use men and women coming back to the message of Romans and very specifically our justification by faith in Christ alone to bring us back to Christ and to bring us back to the life of Christ in our homes, our marriages, our shepherding, and in the church as a whole. We've done that in a consistent basis. And so as we come to Romans and go back to the beginning, where does Romans start? If I could have my next slide, please. Thanks. Can you guys, or is it all a blur? How's your eyesight? Okay. Just going into the context, who wrote Romans? You guys can interact with me, you can shout. Yes, okay. But ultimately, it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Because he opens and says he's an apostle, and he's a slave of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul is merely bringing the message that Christ has for his church. But indeed, the human agency that he uses is this man, the Apostle Paul. And if you go back, do you recall Saul, Paul's, I gave it away, his original name? Paul was his Gentile name, Saul, right? And so part of the context a little bit as we go into the life of Saul. Saul was born where? Any takers? He's born in Tarsus, which is the capital city of a very prestigious Roman province called Cilicia. And it is in Asia Minor and it's in Turkey. So it's on the far, as I'm staring at the far right-hand side, just above Syria. Okay? Okay. And that area right in the corner is Cilicia. And Cilicia was a very prestigious Roman province. And Tarsus was a very prestigious city. It had a famous academy and a famous philosopher who was the tutor of the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, after Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus' tutor was there. And it always had the patronage of Rome and of Caesar for that reason. And it was a busy, rich and prestigious Roman metropolis. And in that city, this is where Paul, or Saul, grows up in an Orthodox Jewish family, and his family, as they seem to be people of means, they seem to be people of significance, both in the Jewish world and the Roman world, they send Saul as a youth to Jerusalem in order to train under the prestigious rabbi named Gamaliel. Now, for me, what's interesting is he goes there with great religious zeal to honor the law, tribe of Benjamin, to be blameless, to study under the very best. He has Roman citizenship. He has great respect and prestige in the Jewish world and in Jerusalem. In all likelihood, he was there when we look at his timeline and his age and we look at that Jesus is crucified somewhere around 30 A.D., 30-31 A.D., the church launches, Pentecost happens. 31-32 A.D., Stephen, the deacon, is stoned, and Saul holds the coats of those who throw stones and stones Stephen to death. And then Paul takes off on his hunt, hostile against the gospel, to destroy the church, to incarcerate Christians. This is happening around 32, maybe 33 A.D. And so as we look at the life of Saul growing up, boarding school in Jerusalem under the tutelage of Gamaliel, there is the possibility that he is there when Jesus comes and ultimately is crucified. But we know for sure he is there with the launch of the church and with Stephen and the deacons increasing and rising influence and impact in Jerusalem. And the irony here is you see, and the reason I put this slide up is to so geographically, how the gospel transformed Saul's life. His life is transformed on this road to Damascus, but where does his life end up? Child of privilege, Jewish, grows in Tarsus and Cilicia, gets sent to Jerusalem to become a Jew among Jews. On the road to Damascus, he is confronted by the gospel. How so? He comes face to face with the crucified and risen Lord. He comes face to face with what we say the gospel is, what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He comes face to face with the reality that Jesus is not dead. He is alive, that he is Lord of all. And when Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, Lord of all, makes the point that he is one with his church and that he is present through his spirit and his word with those who are believers in all the churches that exist at that time in the primary church in Jerusalem. He is Lord of all, he is not dead, and he is present with his people. And whatever Saul does to his people, he is doing to Christ. They are one. This is the gospel message. They are no longer Jews or what will become in the future Gentiles. They belong entirely to Christ. They're one with Christ. And what happens on that road to Damascus is Saul does a 180 degrees. His life has changed. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And instead of being a prestigious expert, In the law, in Jerusalem, where does Saul end up? He ends up going back home to Tarsus, to Cilicia, and he ends up becoming a church planter in the very places that he left. Now I say this for us as we think about our lives, how often after God transforms and changes our lives, Does he send us back to places that we ran from? But he sends us back as changed people to bring the good news of his gospel to people we have left behind. And we see that this is what happens with the Apostle Paul. Every aspect of his life, including his geographical trajectory and his ministry, does a complete 180 and instead of leading Jews he becomes the apostle to the gentiles by Christ's command and we see in Romans 1:15 what accounts for this the man the message the ministry comes down to one thing the good news of Jesus Christ what God has done to save sinners through the life and death and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ And when the epistle to Romans is written, we fast forward to 54 or 56 AD. And now Paul is likely in Corinth. He's finished three missionary journeys. And he has completed his task in that area. And he writes that once you get to Romans 15. And he makes the point, I pretty well done everything that the Lord has asked me to. And I've completed the work here in Asia Minor, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. And at the completion of that, as these churches and all of those different areas are up and moving, okay? Paul is faithful to the call of Matthew 28, 18 to 20. That he's to go into all the world and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And he begins looking at what's next. And what's next for him is not to plant a church where other people have a church, but to bring the gospel to those who haven't heard it. And so he's looking at Spain. And you can see Hispania over here all the way over in the far reaches of the Roman Empire and the world at that time. And he expresses his intent is to take the gospel to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire to go to Spain And on his way, he's going to pass through Rome. And as he looks at Rome, the church in Rome at this time at around 56 AD is a church that's filled with both Jews and Gentiles. And it's had an interesting past. It was not, to the best of our knowledge, planted by an apostle. But instead, it looks like from what we can tell that it's a church of people who got saved elsewhere, and brought the gospel to Rome for business or work. And then there is this edict that goes out where the Jews are expelled for a period of time and they end up having to leave Rome. And then closer to 54, 52 AD, they're enabled to come back. So you've got this church situation where people have started a church together. Gentiles are getting saved. The church is growing and suddenly, a huge portion, the majority portion perhaps at one time of the church, all have to leave. It will be a little bit like in our church. Suddenly Chinese people got expelled. Who's left? Garrett's here, Antonio's here, okay, Paul's here, right? And you guys hold the fort. But the Holy Spirit continues to work. The church grows, right? And because there are no Chinese people, suddenly everybody else is here. But then suddenly the green light Chinese people are able to come back. What happens? We get, hey, this is our church. Well, it looks a little different now, right? And what's interesting is Paul writes is clearly Paul has friends and people who are close to him who have served with him in ministry or who have been saved under his ministry who are at this church in Rome. So he knows some of the people very well and he understands what's going on in this church. And clearly because of them, he has a great love for this church. And so he writes this letter 20 plus years after his conversion after three missionary journeys, after he's finished his work in Asia Minor. And actually, as you look through his other letters and you read Romans, you see a lot of what he writes in Romans is not new. There are bits and pieces and portions in all his other letters. He's not coming up with something new. But instead, as he looks to be united with them in the gospel ministry, He sends this letter in advance so that he can have unity with them and so they can be partners in the gospel and so that together they can help this obedience to Christ's command and obedience of faith to take the gospel together to Spain through Paul. And because Paul has been torn down and he's been criticized and he's got a reputation out there by all his enemies who have said terrible things about him, perhaps because of those reasons, he sets the record straight and he puts together this letter that is going to communicate to those in Rome his intentions, his plans, his purpose, his ministry. And it all comes down to one thing, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the man, that is the message, and that is the ministry. And every aspect of Paul's life is represented by the gospel because that is what has saved him and that is what has transformed him and that is what is every church that he's planted, every letter that he's written and everything he hopes to do is what God has done in his life. And that is how the Lord blessed us with the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, and our hope would be that this would be true of our church and our life too. That every aspect of your life, your marriage, your work, your ministry, you the person, your message, your ministry, every aspect would come down to one thing, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as Paul walks the church in Rome through the gospel, he shows them why this is the case for him and why this is the case for them, and why what unites them together is not their ethnicity, Romans, Gentiles, Greeks, Jews, but instead, what unites them is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his good news. If you have your Bibles, turn with me and we're gonna read Romans 1, 1 through 17. And I know you've read this many times, but It is always an encouragement to me as I read through it. Romans 1.1, Paul. Your ESV says a servant, but it's actually slave is probably better. It's Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, But thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, these are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for us. Could I have my next slide, please? What's the message of Romans? We would say it's, it's the gospel, right? if we were to bring it down and say, what is the authorial intent? What is God's reason for giving this letter to the church in Rome? And why was it left for us? It is to remind us that the power of our lives, the power of a child of God, the power of the local church is our unity with Christ. It's the gospel. May we never forget that. It's the good news of what Christ did for us, what God has done by the power of his spirit to the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this is the power that is able to save the worst of sinners, beginning with the Apostle Paul and his salvation, possibly a murderer, And this is the power in every believer's life that enables us to overcome whatever darkness and ugliness and difficulty this world can throw at us. For our marriages, for our relationships, for the shepherding of our children on our good days and our bad days, every aspect, this is the power of the local church. And when we forget these things, we stray, the church becomes apostate, and we become worse than the world. Why worse than the world? Because we started with Christ, and then we become like the Catholic church, right? A mockery and a counterfeit gospel. And what is it that reforms us and revives us and brings us back? It's the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the message, what is it that is going to bring the Apostle Paul to pagans in Spain? What is it that is going to save barbarians or pagans who are hostile to the gospel? It's not how much money we send. It's not how many missionaries we send. It is the good news of Jesus Christ which is able to save the worst of sinners because God saves his people by his spirit and his word through the foolishness of the cross and through the foolishness of the gospel that makes a mockery of the wisdom of men. When we look at this power, just to break it down from what we heard from the Apostle Paul, he begins and shows in that introduction that the power comes from God The power comes from Christ. The power comes from the work of the Holy Spirit and his word in the lives of his saints. And brothers and sisters, that's why we exhort you over and over again. Spend time in the word, spend time in prayer, gather together and pray together and be together because the power of the gospel is given to us by the spirit of God and by his word. And then he goes on and he points out, It has power because in it is revealed the righteousness of God. What do we mean by the righteousness of God? We're talking about God's standard of righteousness and his standard of right and wrong, God's quality of being right and perfect and complete. We're talking about the morality and the actions that are right and good. There's this spectrum of every aspect from God's standards to his character to his action, All of it. And the Apostle Paul's point is, the gospel gives us this gift of God's righteousness. And this is why it must be received by faith. It is entirely a gift of God, not by works. And the end and the purpose of the gospel is the obedience of faith in Christ. The obedience of faith in Christ. So the test is, did we get it? have we received the gospel has it transformed our life well the real test is is there evidence of obedience of faith in Christ and obedience of faith in Christ is demonstrated by a pattern not of perfection in this life and we'll get to that but is there an ongoing trajectory over time of being obedient to Christ as Lord and obedient to his word and where that's not present We need to stop back and say, do you possess the righteousness of Christ? Has your life been transformed? Has your life been changed? Well, Paul looks at this and says, this is something I could never do on my own. This is something that all my religious education, I couldn't accomplish. This is something that all my zeal and service for God could not accomplish the realization ultimately that it's entirely a gift of God that's given through his son Jesus Christ and because of that it is good news the gospel is good news and the good news comes to those who are slaves of Christ Jesus that we belong to him and that we're set apart now for the gospel of God can I have my next slide please as Paul walks through, where have we been, okay? Paul begins as he walks through with his calling, his ministry, and his message, that it is all about what God has done, right? And what we walk through as he gives the message, what is the gospel, right, in 117? He shows what the gospel is. It's God's gift of righteousness. What has God done that's Right? He didn't just look the other way. He didn't just say, okay, you're gonna show up to church and you're gonna be part of my family. What God did that was right, is he demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he sent his son to pay the price for our sins, to bear his wrath so that when he adopted us into his family, he could say it is done, it is just, it is right. The price and the penalty of sin has been paid and these people are entirely mine. They belong to me. They no longer belong to sin. They no longer belong to Satan. They no longer belong to this world. They are entirely mine. I have paid for them in full. This is a bill, an account that is done. It is right. There have been no cutting corners. And this becomes the foundation of our freedom and our sanctification in Christ. And after Paul establishes this message, that the gospel is about God's righteousness, not our righteousness, in 118 to 320, he begins and shows that through the light of the gospel, if this is true, if what saves us is God's righteousness, not ours, the gospel shows that where we all start is we are all condemned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he walks through in those opening chapters and he begins with everybody. The wrath of God is against all men because all men have suppressed the truth of God with a lie. But then he works through the two different major groups in the church. He works through the pagans. Look at you pagans. You've turned your back on the Lord. You've lived your own way. You stand condemned. You've made a mockery of God. You've ignored it and God has... Set his condemnation and wrath on you. He's just given you over. He's going to let you go and do what you want to do. And you've become what you've pursued. But then he goes to the Jews. And he shows that those who kept the law also stand condemned. Because nobody can keep the law perfectly. And he's going to establish later that the role of the law, though it is to point us to life, in fact, it actually condemns us. And so he points out, look, no matter who you are, according to the gospel, if God's standard of you belonging to his family is his righteousness, we're all condemned. Now, what a gift to a marriage. What a gift to a family. What a gift to a church. There's no, I went to seminary, so you're not as holy as I am. Your marriage would be so much better if you just went to the master's seminary like me right? Or I studied my Bible 40 hours this week. We're all condemned. I tell my boys, right? Whether you got 40% on the exam or 20%, you both failed. right? It doesn't matter. There is no boasting. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. It's really good news. Because that aspect of boasting and pursuing our own righteousness called self-righteousness is what tears this world apart, tears families apart, tears homes apart, tears workplaces apart as we look at how much we've done and how little the other person has done and we stand above them, right? It's all human pride and that's where things started in the garden. And the gospel sets us right. And it brings everything back down to say, look, we all stand condemned before the Lord, but God, right? And then we get to 321 through 839. And what the Apostle Paul shows us is how God has provided a righteousness that is apart from our good works and is apart from the law. It's a righteousness that comes through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we're to sum up the entire gospel life, what all the men preached through last semester, it comes down to this, our union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every aspect of our life comes by having Jesus Christ as our Lord and being one with him. Having him is the gift of our Lord and Savior and King. And that is a gift that is received one way and one way alone. Not by what we do, not by our accomplishments, not how much we know. It's received by faith in him. That's the only way. And the idea of faith is our confidence, our hope is entirely in what Christ did, his perfect life, his perfect work, his perfect love, not mine. I'm a wretch. I fall short. I couldn't get through the door if I tried, but because you took my place and you give me your life, it's simply my act of saying, yes, you're the ticket. You're the one who's right. You're the one who's worth it. I'm going in on your credit, not mine. Right? That's the cross. That's the resurrection. That is the good news of the gospel. And as we enter into the kingdom by faith, we receive the status of sons, we receive justification, sanctification, and glorification. And it's never separate from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's entirely him. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel that Satan attacks on a regular basis. When we look at it and we say, okay, what is the good news? Number one, we're separated from sin, and we're separated from this world, and we're set apart for Christ. Could I have my next slide, please? Is that doable? This is where we ended up. The Ted took us through. Did you take us through Romans 6? The good news of the gospel First is that when Christ comes in, you have a new ruler in your life and you have a new father in your life. Your old biological family, secondary. However much they failed, doesn't matter. Your past life, doesn't matter. You have a completely new start. You have a new king, a new family, a new life, and it is completely separated from your old life and the old world and all of those old things that are there. And so where Paul is going to go is he's going to say in a similar way of what, what Kevin preached to us in Philippians. And it's tied to the same gospel. Is you need to let that past go and you need to move forward in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that when we're united with Christ, we get complete justification. Complete justification. Justification means a declaration by God that you are completely forgiven. Past, present, and future. Because Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for all your sins, not some of your sins. Do we still confess our sins? Yes, we do. My love for my boys, I hope, will never end. So far to date, even when they sin, even when they drop the ball, I'm still their father. I still love them. I still pay the rent. I still go to their soccer games. I still tuck them in bed at night. Okay? Do I want to hear from them? Dad, look, I kind of blew it. Please forgive me. Yes. And that is something that allows us to restore our relationship to a a place, okay, where we both want it to be. But it doesn't stop the fact that, look, within the framework of repentance and faith, they Have my love past, present, and future. Now that's a broken illustration. But with God as our Father, it's a good news. And this is something we need to hear. Past, present, and future. You belong to him. Number one, he's purchased you. He's paid the price with the blood of Christ. That means throughout eternity, you belong to him. According to the gospel and according to Paul's gospel, you can't lose your salvation. Why? Because you didn't save yourself. God saved you. And he paid the price through the blood of his son. You belong to him. Forgiveness, complete. Because it's based on Christ's work, not your work. Where does that leave us? Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we still need to repent? Yes, our entire life, and we're going to get to this in sanctification, is going to be moving towards the Lord and away from the world. Does God still have work to do in our lives? Yes. Okay, from Philippians, Kevin taught us we're works in progress, and that final plan is going to be finished when Christ comes again or when we die. Right? But do we stand condemned? No, absolutely not. Based on God's promises and his work. The good news of the gospel is also complete sanctification. Philippians, he who has begun a good work in you is going to finish it. He's going to do it his way. He's going to finish that good work. And glorification, one day we will see him face to face and we will be like him. The idea of sanctification is directly linked to our justification. They're together. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You're justified, declared righteous, and part of God's family, based on Christ's work, not your own. And that sealing of the Spirit comes from the Lord, and the sanctification, theologians like to refer it in a twofold way. Okay? Limited, but you have positional sanctification. Positional sanctification means when God has purchased you, you belong entirely to Him. You might run the streets, but you belong entirely to Him. And He's going to come out into those streets and He's going to come looking for you and He's going to let you know you belong to Him. And if He has to discipline you, He will do that. But you belong entirely to Him, set apart entirely for the Lord. That is your position. Now, do you need to learn over time what that means that you belong entirely to him? And does he need to do a work in many aspects of your life to bring all of that? Yes, that is our progressive sanctification, the work of the spirit that God has planned out in your life over the course of your life to bring every aspect of your life under the lordship and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rather than the rule of flesh and sin. And that's the process of sanctification that we're all involved in. When we see the gospel, do we need to be patient with one another? Absolutely. Is it a zap? Suddenly you're perfect and everything's good? No. In our marriages, is it a zap? You know, are there times where we're further ahead and other people are further behind? Absolutely. But what's the hope and confidence when someone is saved? Hey, God's going to get them there. He's going to do it in his time and in his way. How do I participate? What does God call me to do? Not to earn it, not to accomplish it, not to fix everyone. I participate by faith. I just obey Christ because I love him and because he has ordained that my prayers and my participation are part of the instruments he's going to use to draw others to Christ, to bring them to salvation, or to sanctify them. And the good news is that our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification are all entirely a work of God that we get a chance to participate in by faith. And as we look at that, we've got to come and say, Okay, bottom line. What's the remedy and what's the hope for every aspect of our lives? It's God's righteousness and his work in my life. And that happens one way and one way alone, in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with us being obedient and following him And that only happens one way and one way alone, by faith, by trusting him rather than me. Trusting him rather than me in the decisions I make for my kids, trusting him rather than me in the way I talk with my wife, trusting him rather than me in the decisions that are made for the church, and doing things according to his word and his spirit. And so that's why in Romans and where we are in six and seven, he talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, coming in and intervening. And in Galatians, he talks about yielding to the Spirit and walking according to the word of the Lord. That as believers, we have this power. We no longer have to walk according to our own wisdom and flesh. We can walk according to God's word and his Spirit, and we can be in step and follow Christ. And we will have A life that is entirely his and entirely like his. Now, what's the catch? Is there a catch? It's all about one thing our union with Christ. That we receive his life and we give him our life. We're one. And where Paul takes us with this is if we're going to share Christ's life, we are going to share his death as well as his resurrection. And that's why he calls us as we get to Romans 6. He says, look, you need to know what God has done for you. You need to reckon that this is is your life now, that you're dead to that old life and you've died and you now belong entirely to Christ and you live for him. And finally, you need to surrender every aspect of your life to Christ. That means, brothers and sisters, if we're going to live Romans, there's going to be a death in our life. And typically how the Lord works in our lives is he brings us to the end of ourselves in a certain area of our life where we realize we can no longer hold it together in and of ourselves. And we have two choices. We either dig deeper or we surrender to Christ and let him take over. And those of you who went through book club, this is what you went through. When Jay Adams talked about if you short circuit and take a a quick path away from God's plan in your life and you go the easy path, you never grow, you never overcome, you never walk by faith, and you remain stuck. And the Lord keeps on bringing back the same trials and the same difficult people and the same difficult things over and over again in love to spur you on. And sometimes he continues to turn the heat, turn the heat, turn the heat, until finally we say, I'll die with Christ so I can live with him. Justification by faith says, I've received his life. It means God has crucified me with Christ and I've died to that old life. And as we look at the apostle Paul, we see that. That's his life. His whole old life was gone. He's living entirely a new life in every aspect of his life. And is it intensified? Yes. But for you and I, that is what justification of faith looks like so for our church as i try and close this up with where we're at my hope and desire is that we would all live the gospel and we would live romans but what does that mean first of all we have to say that many people struggle John Bunyan talked about this in Pilgrim's Progress. If you get a chance to read the adult version, I encourage you to do it. And he talks about Pilgrim walking on this journey to the celestial city. He's gotta go through the narrow gate and then he has to go to the cross and he's carrying this burden. And he gets to the cross and the burden falls off. And then he's given this passport, this message from evangelists, this invitation from the king and he goes on the journey. But as he goes on the journey, there are all these people who hop the fence and don't go through the narrow gate they bypass the cross and they start to walk along with him and they say, hey, we're going to the celestial city too. But it would appear that they've never been through the narrow gate and they have never been to the cross, but they're convinced once they get to the celestial city, they're going to be good. And Christian repeatedly tells them, "I, I don't think it works this way. And of course, they end up with a rude awakening. And as we look at it within the context of the church, there are many who have grown up in the church who believe that by participating in church and walking with believers and being a fan, that they're going to the celestial city and they're saved. And when things get hard and things get tough, they start to crash and burn and they wonder why. And sometimes they can even become bitter against the Lord. And yet the truth is, they've never been justified by faith. They've been living by works i showed up i set up tables i worked on the committee i played in the band i helped out with bible studies i went to seminary and let me tell you there's a ton of guys went through seminary and then you look what's the test and the proof there is no enduring obedience there is no life that's transformed why because what gets exposed is they're living by justification of my works they're actually in many ways we become functional catholics We believe a little bit of faith and a little bit of works gets me right with Jesus. And it doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. You're not part of the team, you're a fan. And when the game's over, you go home. Or when the ticket price gets too high, you don't show up. And so in a church our size, we have to say, yes, there are folks who think they're saved, but they're not. They've never experienced justification by faith, They've never been through the narrow gate. They've never been to the cross. And so they're carrying this burden wherever they go. Guilt, because they don't know what it means to be forgiven, past, present, and future. Beating themselves up on a regular basis because they don't, and have never known and have never reckoned, hey, there's an entire righteousness and freedom from guilt. And I can be a child of God, loved forever, because they haven't walked through the path of the cross. We need to go back to justification by faith and not jump to sanctification and say, it starts with repentance and surrendering my life to Christ. But then there's a second group of folks, and this is why I believe Romans is so important for our church. Many of us, when Paul gets to Romans 6, he points out there are aspects of our life though we're saved and we've been justified, where we're still living by the flesh. It could be our jobs. It could be our marriages. It could be our parenting. And yes, indeed, we are saved and we're walking in that area, but the Lord progressively sanctifies. And this is why he says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. There are certain areas where we're still alive to sin and we're dead to Christ. And we haven't taken that death And we haven't died, and we haven't surrendered, and we're still hanging on and trying to do it until the Lord brings us to the end of ourselves. And we realize he's good, he's gracious, he has it covered. He does a better job than I do. And in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan shows this. As Christian walks along the path and things get a little bit hard, And as they get hard, they say, oh, there's an easier path on the other side, on the other side of the fence, off the path. And so he convinces, I think it's hopeful, to go with him on the other side. And they go on the other side and they try and take a shortcut. In other words, they're walking away from the gospel in a portion of their life. And they end up getting taken captive by Giant Despair. And they end up in prison. And Giant Despair's wife, I think, is self-doubt. And they come into the prison and they beat them up on a regular basis. Giant despair, depression, and self-doubt. And they pound on them. And then Pilgrim gets to the point where he says, I wanted to commit suicide. And he gives one of the most detailed descriptions of someone who contemplates it's better if I just ended my life. And I wonder how much for John Bunyan, who was in prison for 12 years and could have been released at any point probably if he said... I'll leave, I just won't preach the gospel. And his wife, they said, would come to the front of the prison with her kids, with their kids, so that he could look out and see them. Okay? Not knowing if he would ever be together with his family again. What is it that brings him back? It's the promise of God that releases him from the prison, that gives him hope, and brings him back to the gospel path. And so as we come to Romans, we see for many believers, there's an aspect of our life where we go back to our old ways. We live by the flesh and we walk down that path and we get weakened in our relationship with the Lord and our life becomes filled not with the gospel, but despair. And we've got brought to the point sometimes where we give up hope in those areas. And yet God does not let us go. He rescues us. And he brings us back. But what does he bring us back with? The good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And through that, we learn that God is good. He loves us. He hangs on to us. And that our salvation is not based on our performance or our works, but entirely the love and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, hopefully that sets us up as we get into the final section of Romans For the first half, before we get through 9 to 11, we're going to go through 7 and 8. We're going to see the work of the Holy Spirit and how sanctification works in our life. And hopefully we'll be ready for that in the next week or two. Thank you for bearing with me this evening. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a good work you do. What hope you give us. That through your gospel, we have a power in our lives that is greater than our sin or the sin of others or any challenges this world brings. That we have a salvation that is secured for us, past, present, and future. And that we have a hope that cannot be taken away because it is a hope that is based on your perfect love for us, your perfect forgiveness, your perfect sacrifice, and your perfect faithfulness to sinners like us. Thank you for these things. In your name we pray, amen.